Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, podcast, postcode, podcast. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 443. How are you all doing? It's great that I got tongue-tied there, because today's guest is Cecilia, I can't say it, say her, is Cecilia Knapp, who I originally know from the spoken word scene, and we get into a lot of that, but she's a wonderful author and has her first novel out little boxes that you can get now you can order now and i wanted to have a good chat about it again weird that i've got tongue-tied and can't speak around on an episode with someone who we've performed in front of each other many a time so yeah i think you're going to enjoy this there's a lot of people that we mentioned in this episode have been previous guests so i'm looking at jack rook i'm looking at Kay tempest who's coming back on soon a little reveal for you there i'm looking at polar bear who's been on multiple times as has k moose rock wonga i'm sure we mentioned a lot of people from the spoken word scene and it's a beautiful chat about forging a career in the arts when you come from a working class background yeah i think you'll enjoy it i really think you will and i think you'll love cecilia's book so check that out before we get into it obviously you can Support by buying merch from speechdevelopmentrecords.com. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash Pit. But the best bit these days is you can come and join me on twitch.tv forward slash Pipio. I'm over there streaming all the time, having a lot of fun. I've built a church. Next up, I'm building a podcast studio in a game called Rust on a server of the comedian Limmy. So if that all confuses you... Just download the Twitch app and look up Scroobius Pipio and it'll all start to unfold. Like you can watch all previous streams on there as well uh, for free. So you can go and do that if you want. But um, that's not what we're here to talk about. I was delighted to jump on Zoom. I love it when I'm pitched people that I've got some kind of shared experience with, with and history with. I booked C for some of her earlier gigs with like, like when I was running the poetry stage at festival and camp festival and stuff like that so to see people like her people like jack rook just smashing it and smashing it there's a weird sense of pride which pride that i have no ownership over but pride and excitement that is is there nonetheless so yeah i think you're going to really enjoy this i did i'm telling you i did so let's get into it this is episode 400 and 43 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the wonderful Cecilia Knapp. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. Right, I'm here today with Cecilia Knapp. How are you, mate? I'm really good, thank you. It's It's been a long time since we've spoken or seen each other, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a while and it's really exciting to talk. I think the last time I saw you, we didn't actually get much of a chance to catch up because I came to see a performance that you were doing. So there's been so much going on in your life. I love the kind of, like, overall, I hate social media but the small silver lining of it is watching people absolutely smashing it so it's it, it, it's good it's good for that but it's nice to catch up in person or yeah. over zoom as well 
It is. It is. How are you at the moment? Is everything kind of over, over, overwhelming? Because we're going to obviously talk about your debut novel, and mm. that's a big deal. So, yeah, how are you in your mind and in your life? Yeah, overwhelming is quite a good word to describe it, I suppose. Like, um, I feel like everything's kind of come at once. I feel like for quite a long time I was sort of plugging away, you know, putting the putting the effort in or the work in or whatever, doing little open mic nights. And, um, you know, me and you used to hang out quite a lot at Bestival, didn't we? Yeah. I was always doing little poetry slots on the stage at Bestival and stuff. And then, um, yeah, it all sort of happened at once. I sold I sold my, uh, my manuscript for my novel just before we went into lockdown. Um, oh, wow. And then I also sold a manuscript for my first poetry collection, the, the summer when we were still in lockdown. So um, it felt a little bit like, you know, when you're waiting for a bus and then two come along at once, basically. Yeah. yeah. And also weird because <laughs> there's a, it's quite a British thing, but there's a weird guilt sometimes when things are going well when the rest of the world is falling apart. Mm, um, yeah. So that must have been kind of an odd thing to be, all oh, right, we're in this pandemic, everything's going nuts. But yeah. man, like life is coming together for me this is this is on point yeah it was kind of strange duality of it's it's never felt real really I I always wanted to write a book and I so when it did happen I expected it to feel like this kind of aligning moment Uh, but I was just in my flat with my cat um for like three months um (laughs) and uh only really speaking to people on zoom and so it, I guess it didn't really click. I, I suppose when big things happen in your life, it never really feels like you think it would feel, do you? Like Completely. big birthdays that come along or, you know, <laughs> when when something that you've been looking forward to happens, it never really feels real. You, you just sort of absorb it into your life and carry yeah, on, don't you? I couldn't agree more. There's kind of this huge build-up and poetic telling of an event and then it always is followed by it and then I woke up the next day. Yeah, and you've still and that's got... that's it, you, you yeah, continue you've, on. You've still got to chop up an onion for your dinner yeah. and you've still got a massive, I don't know, energy bill to pay and you've still got a pile of washing to do. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not glamorous. Unless your big breakthrough moment is that solar-powered onion chopper that, yeah, that you've well, been working exactly. on for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and then it makes the difference. But, I mean, obviously I want to talk a load about the, the book. I've started reading it. I'm loving it and I love, there's loads of specific things about it I want to kind of talk about. But I feel particularly with a debut novel, you kind of talked about all these things kind of happening all of a sudden, Mm. but it's because of the whole journey that that gets you here. And I always find that fascinating. So I kind of want to go back to the start and talk about everything. But I guess before any of that, let's have a quick Jack Rooker's appreciation section um, <laughs> about how wonderful Jack is because you, you and Jack were kind of two of my absolute favourites to kind of come through that that roundhouse thing mm. with the best of alls and so on and so forth. Mm. And as I said, you're both people that again I've had periods of time like hanging out with, but really like we've not been in the same scenes loads and loads. But I do feel I know you both well, and I feel excited and happy when you're smashing it and jack's one that honestly just watching Mm. him him go from strength to strength and then be equally his unprofessional 
bitchy, sassy, <laughs> sassy little self on Instagram yeah. or whatever is anyone that's is a listening joy. follow Jack Rook on Twitter and yeah. Instagram for um, for absolutely excellent content. I saw him last night actually. He was doing a gig, a comedy gig with uh, Travis Alabanza at Bar Donna in Stoke Newington, and uh, he always says that because uh, like for those that don't know, Jack's a comedian and a TV writer now. Um, but we met when we were doing a poetry course at the Roundhouse like 11 years ago when we were both about, I think I was 19 and he was 18. And um, he always says that he's a recovering spoken word artist. <laughs> <laughs> and he did that in his set last night and then looked pointedly at me because obviously I'm still a poet. <laughs> so, You're still deep in it. I'm still there, it. yeah. Um, well, I mean... Going all the way back, like you, you grew up in, in in London, right? No, I grew up in Brighton. In Brighton, yeah, I was actually born in the Midlands in Kettering, um, which there's nothing really to report about that particular yeah. um, part of the world, apart from James Acaster, the comedian, has made it quite famous because yeah. he always talks about it. Yeah. So yeah, I was born there, and uh, I I actually moved to Brighton to live with my dad when I was seven. So Brighton was right. was my kind of coming of age town, uh, which yeah. is why the book is set yeah, in that Brighton. Makes sense. I feel like a lot of people with their debuts tend to set a book in and around the places that they grew up. The sort of you know, there's a lot in the kind of socio emotional landscape of your um, of your hometown, isn't there? So. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Brighton and then um, I moved to London when I was 18 and uh, I moved up alone, actually. I was just keen to get out of out of my kind of home environment, basically. And um, where I met Jack was at the Roundhouse in Camden, who, yeah. who um, they run cheap and free and subsidised courses for young people to kind of dip their toes in creativity, basically. And I, I used to think I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> and I went to this workshop at the Roundhouse thinking it was an acting workshop and it was actually a poetry workshop run by Polar Bear, Stephen wow. Camden. Yeah. And, uh, well, that was, that was me, really. That was the kind of... That was, I would say if you, if you had to ask me what a pivotal moment in my life was up to now it would be that moment because that's where I met Jack and that's where I met other people that wanted to be writers and that whole environment of just sitting and writing in a room every Sunday with with Stephen um and the other writers it was just a world opening up to me I didn't I didn't think that being a writer was a, was a job that you did I thought it was a hobby you know yeah. I a lot, I guess a lot of people get into poetry and writing through like a creative writing degree, but I didn't do creative writing at uni. I just did uh, bog standard English and I tended to find that w the stuff we were studying was, um, uh, <laughs> how do I put this diplomatically? Not very inspiring, I suppose. Yeah. And and in encountering that environment at the Roundhouse with, with Stephen and with all the other writers, it was it was the antithesis of what I would, had been reading at school and what I'd been reading at university. It yeah. was it was contemporary poetry uh, entirely on its own terms, and um, that was the start of, of of getting into poetry. Basically, well, I, I relate massively to that. The thing, one of the things that me and and Polar Bear connected with on our early days on the scene was you'd go to so many events that people had got into poetry from those kind of worlds of creative writing or expensive universities or whatever else and mm. we'd got into it through rap yeah. <laughs> it's like we couldn't have felt less kind of <laughs> of qualified but it drew us to, uh, together because we would be the ones that back going 
we're not getting any respect until we get up and do our thing. As soon as we've yeah. done our things, people would be nice to us. Prior yeah. to that, people would be like, all right, well, why are you here kind of thing? <laughs> it was always, with Kay as well, it was always at the same. I remember so many of the more pretentious gigs that the three mm. of us would be smuggling beers in or smuggling mm. wine in or whatever else and doing our thing and getting really looked down upon until mm. we got up and did what we do. And then mm. people like being a, wow, oh, I see influence of this. They're like, nah, yeah. nah, you yeah. weren't interested at the start. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, yeah. You, you can't, you can't join the party now. Yeah. I feel like it's, um, I love to speak to people who've come in from different routes. I mean, yeah. you know, no, absolutely no shade on anyone that has, you know, gone and done a creative writing degree and got into it 100%. that way. Like, well, Kay's an example of that. They studied all of that st- yeah. st- st- stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, kind of, you might not get that on your initial yeah. <laughs> impressions on performance and whatnot. Yeah, I like to chat to people about their different routes into it because I feel that the way that I came into it and the way that, the way that I guess you came into it as well, it feels like a bit of a democratisation of the mm. of the form, doesn't it? Yeah. Now I sound really wanky, but no, no, I, I like to talk agree. to people who... I feel a lot of the time when I speak to writers that I really connect with, they, they always use the phrase, I stumbled into it or I, f- mm. or I fell into it. You know, mm. like it wasn't this intentional thing. It was just a moment where... Because maybe they had like preconceived ideas about what poetry is and so weren't necessarily going to go and do that with their lives and then stumbled into it through a workshop or maybe they encountered like a spoken word artist or a poet at a gig above a pub in some sweaty little room or something and stumbled into it that way. And that was the thing, you know, that's the proof that actually poetry and especially like contemporary poetry happening now is this like playful kind of fun brilliant alive vivid thing it's not even something that exists on a bookshelf really it's yeah. a it's a hybridization of of performance and 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 craft and and there's so many different amazing voices that are that are kind of inventing and reinventing the rules of poetry as as you go so like i work a lot with young people and like my first port of call when I go into a school or when I was Young People's Laureate, for example, my first port of call was always, what do you think of when you think of a poet? And they all sort of described like a older, like white man with a little beard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you'd show them, I don't know, maybe you'd show them Kay or maybe you'd show them uh, like a really incredible performer like Caroline Bird or or someone like that and they'd be like oh okay you can have fun with language you can make it work for you you can you can manipulate it you can you can talk about the things that you actually care about in your own voice you don't have to sound a certain way to be a poet and I think that's the most exciting thing about poetry is that it's a it's a language that we are inventing and reinventing all the time right 100 percent, and and I think Polar Bear, Stephen Camden, again, we're going to have to name him twice every time hmm. because of his um, changes over the years, um, is the perfect person t- to nurture that. And it's why I would book people from the Roundhouse classes every year for Best of All because it always felt like rather than saying, here's how you do something, Polar Bear would ask you how you're going to do it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, rather than this yeah. is how you do it, yeah. how are you going to do it? How's yeah. What's your route going to be? Because, again, that is the most 
welcome in an inclusive way rather than oh you need to do this oh you can't do that all right well it's not for you go no there's no rules like let's find out and again equally everyone from that era starts off essentially imitating (laughs) polar bear because how could you not but then again a few months in a year in everyone starts to to go in their own directions and it's it's a beautiful thing but but speaking of directions even before we get to that it sounds like a really interesting journey of your maybe exposure to the arts as an option because Kettering I wouldn't think is the most nurturing of artistic ways but then Brighton the arts are presented as very much an option and Mm. then London even more so presented as an option but in London they're presented as an option that you kind of have to succeed at if Mm. you know what I mean here's your targets here's what you have to do to be Mm. considered a a success so yeah at what point did you start to think for example I want to be an actor or Mm. I want to be you know all these other other things when did they feel realistic as an option I guess honestly they still don't feel realistic yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) I still I still um like I was getting my hair cut yesterday, for example, and my hairdresser was like, what do you do? And I still struggle to say I'm a writer yeah. because I think I don't feel... I mean, I take it seriously. I work I work hard and, and I've, you know, I try try my best, but like I still feel that like that it has an association with something that is maybe more of a hobby or mm-hmm. some, something that is not as hard work as something else. You know, it's like what we were saying earlier about feeling guilty when success finds you. Sometimes I feel like that a little bit. But I was really privileged growing up in the sense that creativity was all around me. Um, My dad's a a, a classical musician and, you know, basically sung through my entire childhood and played the piano and, you know, had lots of very alternative friends. I mean, we were very poor growing up because it's not lucrative mm-hmm. i mean unless you're unless you're very very successful commercially successful let's say yeah. a career in the arts is not you're not doing it for the money are you no exactly um so actually although although my background was creative my my dad actually never encouraged me to uh, work in the arts i think because he wanted me to have a bit more stability than i had had growing up or a bit more stability than him so he was always very he always pushed me quite academically. Yeah. But I guess I started to feel that it could be a realistic job after I had worked with Polar Bear at the Roundhouse for a year or so because I had found a community of people that were wanting to do the same things. You know, mm-hmm. people like Jack, for example, but yeah. all the other poets that came up through the roundhouse and you know we were doing fun things like going and gigging you know for you know for sometimes we'd get paid 30 quid for a gig that we'd traveled to like bristol for or something it wasn't like we were making money but i guess it i didn't feel silly because there were other people doing it too so i think london was a big turning point for me being you know living in london and I still worked, like I worked in uh, bars and I did catering shifts and all, all the way through my like early to mid 20s as I was kind of trying to um, get a name or some sort of reputation. So yeah, London was huge for that. I love that. And again, I think you're right. It's it's not about how much you're being paid. It's the fact, almost the fact that you're travelling all the way to Bristol to be mm. paid to do this thing. And again, it's why I was always adamant on Bestival that make sure everyone's 
getting paid. Everyone's getting actually introduced and is there on their own merit, right? Mm. So you're, you're again, it always, I remember the first time I played Bester, I was like, I'm getting on a f- ferry to to go and do <laughs> some kind of art. This is mad. This is, <laughs> how's this a thing? Um, and yeah, that was always important. And I think that it helps you get into that mentality of, no, this is my job. This is what I'm doing. This is, mm. and it's not just a hobby. It's mm. not just a, a side thing. I think if you restrict yourself to just, for example, getting up at your local poetry night, it's easy for that to to just be a side thing mm. forever. It's when you start to take those gigs out of town and travel and put effort in that you get to go, right, I'm doing this. Mm. Like, this is real. Yeah, and it's it's also like, so putting, you know, writing books and stuff, it's, it's hugely enjoyable in the first instance because you're just being like, you're in that zone where you're sort of like abundantly creative and you're just literally things are spiraling from your head you're making things up that didn't exist two seconds ago and it's an amazing feeling yeah but that's like five percent of writing the other like 95 percent is reading and rereading and editing and showing people and then having those people that you've shown come back with notes that you then go through and have to change and and then there's you know that that thing that you get when you're a, a writer where you're real life your you like your kind of everyday life starts to blend into your creativity as well and you're like where's the separation like yeah. you're thinking about it all the time you're dreaming about it you're you're talking to someone but your mind's wandering because you're like I've just got to change that paragraph because actually I don't think that bit's working anymore and then you've got all the sort of self promotion on social media and stuff like that so when I whenever I say to myself like oh you you're you know whenever I try and convince myself that writing isn't a hard job I then have to remind myself of those things because I'm like actually no I feel like I'm when when I'm when I'm working on something I'm working on it like 24 7 it's always in my brain it's sort of a bit like torture (laughs) yeah and it's such a working class thing to have to justify how hard you're working um again be productive all the time you know yeah there's definitely a class that don't have those thoughts that just mm. happily go oh this is great but i i remember the the one year i did the fringe i was advised to take a day off every week like when we were booking it and i was like no nah, i'm only doing an hour every night like yeah. every day's a day off i'm not taking a day off i'm there to work yeah and a couple of weeks in the burnout of it all because again as you say it is it's that complete thing you're it's in your head in the build-up it's in your mm. head afterwards you're you're yeah. analyzing this you're analyzing that but yeah. in my mind i was like nah it's, yeah. I ain't taking a day off from an hour a day. <laughs> I know, but Edinburgh is intense, isn't it? And any performance is intense. Like yeah. I don't do so much performing anymore, but I used to maybe read, read, do poetry readings like two or three times a week when I was younger. And even if you're only on stage for twenty minutes, yeah, like you say, it's the adrenaline before, it's the mm-hmm. chatting to people after. If your work is uh, influenced by your own life, which I guess a lot of mine is. Sometimes people want to talk to you after a gig and ask you questions like, did that really happen to you? Or, you know, oh, that happened to me as well. And that can kind of take it out on you as well. I mean, I love, mm-hmm. love, I love talking to people after poetry gigs. It's, it's an amazing, it feels like you're in this amazing exchange and this amazing community. But I don't think it can be underplayed, like how much of yourself you're putting into that, you know? Yeah. So even if you're only performing at Edinburgh for an hour a day, you know, that is still like a big a big chunk of work isn't it yeah 100 percent. you f- you kind of feel you need to be on 
the mm. whole time and yeah. and as that as that person um i mean sp- speaking of all of that then from quite early on in your career really as soon as you started to build a profile you've worked with calm you've put on Mm -hmm. events for calm you've been an ambassador for calm and again they're a a charity i've worked with from their kind of inception what was your route to working with those guys essentially i guess and i'm 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 aware i'm now throwing these big (laughs) emotional conversations at you but yeah what was kind of tell me about that um yeah so going back to jack rook again Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like it's, he's like the silent partner in this podcast episode. Jack, yeah, uh, well, I knew, it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew Jack because we we were writing together on Polar Bear's course at the Roundhouse, and um, he was um, volunteering for Calm um, because Jack uh, did journalism at uni, and he was volunteering at Calm, and he was writing for their magazine. They used to have a, a monthly magazine that went out. Yeah, so I was aware of them through him. And then in 2012, I lost my brother to suicide. He was only 20 when he died. Uh, and he'd struggled with addiction all the way through our teenage years. And I was a, a carer for him. And so when that happened, I was so lucky that that happened when I was enmeshed in that writing group at the Roundhouse with people like Jack and all mm. of the other writers because they were such a massive support to me. And writing was such a massive support to me as well. Yeah. And you know, the things that I was writing, they weren't even very good, but they were they were ways to kind of confront and to contain in some way that experience, you know. Yeah. And Jack said, look, you know, maybe it's too soon, but, you know, I've been working with this charity and would you like to get involved? And I said, yes, like my, my response to grief, I had a sort of delayed response to grief. My initial response was like, really being really proactive you know I didn't stop working I didn't stop writing I didn't stop going to the roundhouse group and me and Jack arranged a big fundraiser for calm like six months after Leo died Mm. which like looking back on it now seems kind of insane like I I I, I, sort of touching on what we were talking about earlier like I'm I'm quite a go 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 person I feel guilty if I'm not being productive and I guess Mm. that was manifesting in my grief as well so we put on this big fundraiser and um, that was back in the day, you know, coming up to 10 years ago now when Calm was like four people in like a tiny little office in Southwark. Yeah. And now it's like a team of like upwards of 65 people in like a beautiful, massive office. Yeah. Um, and the campaigns that they're doing are huge, like, you know, national scale campaigns involving loads of different ambassadors like yourself, but, you know, also like footballers and mm-hmm. Um, all with the aim to to get the message out about preventing suicide. That that's their main objective is to prevent suicide. So for the last ten years, I've always been involved with the charity. They are so open. They are so welcoming. Like you come to them with an idea, you say, "I want to do this fundraiser for you." They're like, "Yeah, what do we need to do to support you?" And yeah, I've just always always been involved. And like in one way, like it's obviously sad that they've grown because that would indicate that there is like a huge need for the charity you know mental health provision in this country is absolutely diabolical and continues to be slashed by the Tory government and so the charity almost has to be there to do the work of 
what the government should be doing, basically, yeah. right? So in one way, it's sad that they've grown. In another way, it's been amazing to see how far-reaching they've been, how inclusive they're becoming. You know, they they now work across all gender identities, whereas they used to just be targeted to men because men still have the highest rate of suicide in the UK. But they also now, you know, they've expanded to work with everybody and also support all the bereaved people that are obviously being left in the wake of this epidemic essentially this you know mental health epidemic so yeah i've i've always done stuff for them the most recent fundraiser i did was uh back in november last year uh poetry and comedy night with jack as well Mm -hmm. so i can't think of a time where where i ever stopped doing it I, i love putting them on i love people that haven't heard of the charity finding out about the charity and Everyone knows someone that's been affected by suicide. You know, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that doesn't know a friend of a friend or a family member. So I think it's important to to kind of keep banging that drum. I completely agree. And although, you know, on the surface it does sound like, oh, man, maybe you jumped into that too quickly. Maybe that's too much pressure. But I can't think of better people to be surrounding yourself with and better Mm. information and better Mm. help that, you know... Although on one level, yeah, you're putting on an event, there's the pressure of this, there's the added pressure of it feeling like it's some way in tribute and and things like that. But you're also around people who have gone through that, who who know about this kind of thing. Mm. And I think one of our big problems in the UK is our lack of conversation about Mm. death about Mm. and again it's changing on on mental health now because of people like Khan because of people like yourself and Jack and loads of others because of conversation about suicide all of these things and it is changing but I think it's still got a long way to go and I Mm. think being around people who have had these experiences is an absolute blessing to Mm. be able to relate and converse and Mm. and interact um so I guess at what point did you start to again having heard you speak about the need for productivity and so on and so forth at what point did you start to channel some of that grief into creativity and write kind of a show about your experiences and again I people often say that writing about these things are cathartic but I think that almost oversimplifies it I Mm. think for me it always feels like no it's it's the need to pay tribute Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It doesn't make things better. It doesn't go. Oh, I've written a show about it now. I'm over it. Cool. Yeah. I've, I've had my cathartic moment. It's not as simple as that. But I think there is something beautiful in knowing you've paid tri- tri- tribute in some way. I, I believe the sh- show I saw you perform in is somewhere in South London. I think it was near like uh, uh, Surrey Keys or Canada Water. Oh yeah, yeah. That's way. the Canada Water Theatre. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. was there, and and again, it was amazing and. It felt like such an important show for so many people watching and mm. equally f- for you. So mm. so how was that? Tell me about that a little bit. When did you decide to do something on the subject and how was yeah. it to, to do? Like I said earlier, I'd just been writing a lot after my brother died. It just felt like the... It felt kind of instinctive. And I'd lost my mum when I was younger as well. She died of cancer and I had always journaled through it. Mm. So I guess I was kind of m- mirroring that with the loss of my brother as well. And I was journaling and I I thought one day that this could be one long thing. It just felt like it was having, it had this journey to it. Like basically I, 
I inherited my mum's bike when I was about 20, 21 or something like that. My auntie had been keeping it for me. And this bike became like the catalyst for this show. I got onto this bike and I was riding it around London, like down the canals and stuff. I used to live in um, Mile End. And I just started like sort of reading in my mind to myself all the stuff that I'd written about Leo, my brother. And it felt like it was just going somewhere. I don't know if that's because I was riding a bike and I was going forward. But I had this idea about writing a show where I'm riding the bike and flashing back to my childhood with my brother and figuring out what happened, basically. Mm. And I don't mean that in the sense of, like, you know, some sort of convenient, neat narrative. Why did he kill himself? Why isn't he here? Like, what could I have done differently? Because I think that's reductive. But more, I mean, trying to find a language for my grief. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what poetry and theatre and, and fiction can do. It's about finding a language where our everyday language fails, right? It's like a subliminal language. And we create that language when we welcome the conditions of literature into our lives. Because, you know, poetry, it doesn't have to follow the same rules as our normal, the way that you and I are talking to each other now. It can leap through time and space. It It can be illogical. It can use language and push language in a way that, creates something new a feeling perhaps that we hadn't been able to land upon before we can Mm. we can exploit those slippages of language and create this kind of landscape and in this uh, show that I was writing I was creating a landscape for my grief and I think you're right it's not about it's not cathartic actually it's actually very hard to write about those things because you're skating out onto the thin ice of yourself, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the way I heard it explained one time. Like, in therapy, and I've been in therapy in my life to, to deal with various things, shit boyfriends and <laughs> loss and all of that malarkey, right? Yeah. In therapy, they know when to pull you back. They mm. let you go a certain way, don't they? Yeah. And you, you talk about your losses and what's happened to you. And when they can see that you've had enough, they pull you back. When you're writing, who's there to pull you back? No one. So I always think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, writing is therapy. I I, I think it can be used alongside a therapeutic practice, but it can be really difficult to write those things. And yeah, it feels amazing when you land on something that you hadn't been able to articulate before. It can feel very empowering, but it can also feel really, really, really hard. And writing that show was empowering in so many ways. It did help me explore the slippery nature of grief and it did help me remember my brother. But it was also really difficult to keep performing it night after night after night. And so I, when I stopped, I was so relieved. Yeah. I was ready to move on to the next thing in my life, which was the book that I ended up writing, which was a completely different experience because there was no pressure to go and perform it every day. You yeah. know, I could just be with that work and I could be with these fictional characters that are yes based on people that I know in my life but there's a safety there's a boundary there you know so I felt really good about writing Finding Home which was the show about my brother and it did teach me a lot of things but I was glad uh, when it was over and I could move on to the next thing I felt I'd reconciled that part but grief is an ever-changing thing and so when you've landed on one thing you put that away 
and then you move on to the next project where you're writing about it in a slightly different way, you know? I think it's really interesting and it speaks of the kind of non nine to five nature of these things is that you don't get to just finish and switch it off. And I think you're completely right that when you're kind of scratching verse into that thin ice, it can be hard to notice what is cracking and what is, is, is the art. And then once it's cracked, that's, that's you. You, 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 you know what I mean? You can't just mm. have this amazing day of writing and mm. go, right, that's that done. Mm. Let's get on with these things. Yeah. It's all, you've, you, you've drawn it out and it's yeah. in your, in your head. Well, I, I mean, before we move on and we will move on, I promise. Um, I want to quickly talk about who, who directed that sh- show? Because I think the, the kind of, from speaking to Polar Bear and, and, and seeing the developments and stuff, I've been to so many one person shows and you always think, oh man, that poet is amazing. Mm. And you never really hear much about the people who brought that to yeah. life and for such a personal story. And it was yeah. a beautiful presentation for such a personal story. It's a huge amount of trust to yeah. to work with someone on this, you know? So th- yeah, I think you're so right. And also thank you for asking that question because yeah, the director is so fundamental to a piece of work like that not only from a kind of staging performance perspective but from a script perspective and a text perspective as well I was so lucky with my director my director was Steph O'Driscoll and she directed one of Kay's plays actually Hopelessly Devoted and I went to see Hopelessly Devoted and I loved it and noticed Steph's name on the uh, program and approached her to, to direct Finding Home, not thinking that she would. I was very young at the time. I had yeah. that confidence of youth. Yeah, <laughs> now yeah, I'm much yeah, more yeah, insecure. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I sent her the script and she, she did come on board to work on it with me. But, you know, she was fundamental in reordering some parts and creating a real flow to the piece. You know, she wasn't just do this, stand there, say that, these are what the lights are going to look like. She was mm. deeply invested and... Um, Oh, the show wouldn't wouldn't have been anywhere near as 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 good without her. Basically, yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, so I, what I kind of, as soon as I started reading little boxes, I um, I was wondering how much of this were you writing alongside other things, or developing in your head alongside other things over the years, or or was it very much a I've finished that now I'm starting this? Like, was it a started mm. beginning to end, or was it stuff that was always bubbling or floating around? I think that I was sort of writing it in patches whilst I was still doing Finding Home, mm. and in between Finding Home and finishing the book, I had a play on as well called Losing the Night, which was. It almost felt like the beginning of writing fiction for me because it was two characters and I was writing for them. And then the show was performed by actors. It was such a joyful experience handing words over to someone and not having the responsibility of saying them yourself. So finishing Finding Home and not having to perform that anymore, writing Losing the Night, which was a play for other voices, with a kind of laid the foundations for writing Little Boxes because... It was like, it felt like the next progression. It's like things trouble me, right? I find there are, th- there are certain things that trouble me, certain themes, grief being one of them, suicide and mental health, growing up poor uh, and, and how that affects your 
position in the world and how you see yourself. These things really trouble me. I think about them all the time. And I guess everything that I've ever written is a way to nudge those things in a slightly different way. Mm. It's a way to approach them from a different angle. So I guess finding home was super personal. Losing the night was like, okay, how do I talk about these things through the voices, through the mouths of other people? And Little Boxes is like, is like that in the most extreme sense because it's based on f- it's it's four fictional characters yeah. so it's it's not me really but once i finished with all the theater stuff i i went to paris for a little bit just for two weeks but i went completely on my own and didn't have any mates out there or anything and i just sat and wrote most of the book basically wow. i feel like I've, i do remember feeling like released from performance and being able to just write I had the first page of Little Boxes since I was about 22. Right. Actually, it's not, it, didn't, it didn't end up being the first page because I moved it later on in the book. But I had this, this character, Nathan, who I just felt like I knew him. I just felt him arrive like in me, which sounds weird. But I had his opening paragraph. I had his introduction for years and years before I finished the book. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know the. I don't know the reasoning or the logic behind how these things happen in my brain. I just, yeah. I just had that, and then was able to write into that later on when I had the kind of time and the, and the space, basically. I love it, and, and as soon as you start reading, the kind of the, the, the non-fiction is flowing out of the fiction. If you know what I mean, they all feel like f- familiar. F- faces and places and people mm. and emotions how much of it is that kind of right i'm gonna because m- m- my route to writing poetry w- was always right i'm not comfortable r- writing non-fiction as such but i don't w- want to just make things up so i'll dress mm. up non-fiction as fiction if you know what i mean i'll change mm-hmm. it enough and move it enough to feel comfortable performing this because even though everyone assumes it's non-fiction in the back of my head i'm like i know this isn't really about me it kind of is but it isn't so how much of that is is in the process I guess okay I suppose I can tell you that I grew up in Brighton yeah and I can tell you that suicide has touched my life as as we've already discussed I can tell you that I had a very bad boyfriend for a very long time (laughs) I can tell you that I know Brighton intimately as if it was like a person that I know And so I guess if you read the book or for anyone that's reading the book, if you know those things, you're probably going to understand like where it came from. Yeah. I grew up like mainly with men as well. Like I say, I lost my mum. So I was raised by my father and uh, I have an older brother as well. So I had like a lot of men in my life. And, and most of the characters in Little Boxes, apart from one character, Leah, are young lads. Mm. And... I think that was something that I wanted to explore, I suppose. I wanted to sort of see, if I could, see the world through the eyes of the men characters in my book. So I suppose, although, you know, Leah, Matthew, Jay and Nathan, they're not real people, I guess they are a kind of amalgamation of all of those things that I've just mentioned, the themes yeah. that trouble me, the themes that I think about all the time. The, But... Yeah, I mean, there are things that happen in the book that literally did happen and there are things that happen in the book that never happen, but I'm not going to tell you which ones are which. <laughs> and rightfully so, and rightfully so. So just quickly, for me and for the listeners, I guess, tell me what the book is and what it's mm. about. It's about these four friends 
that yeah. have kind of drifted and and coming to, uh, together. Yeah, what's yeah. the the elevator pitch? <laughs> the elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah, this is something that I'm I'm having to get good at because I have to keep talking about my book in the lead up to it coming out. Yeah, four friends that grew up in the same block of flats in Brighton: Leah, Jay, Matthew, and Nathan. Leah and Jay are together or kind of together but it's all on the rocks um nathan's dealing with unrequited love and that's sending him into all sorts of spirals as it is prone to uh, and matthew's struggling with his sexuality and and coming out in quite a masculine environment and there's a death within their community somebody that they're all very close to for various reasons dies and it's about their different reactions to that death and how it kind of draws some of them together but blasts some of them apart and I guess I wanted to explore through their eyes how everyone reacts to grief completely differently. You know, up until now, I just write about my own grief. Mm. But I wanted to place that grief into the minds of other people and, and see that there's no one way to grieve. It's a very yeah. rocky landscape and it's going to be completely different for everyone. So they're kind of, they're like my conduits to exploring that, I guess. And I suppose like it's a coming of age novel in the sense that some of them get out of Brighton and some of them don't. And then there's that, that wider question of like, why do we kind of place so much value or impetus on leaving the towns that kind of made us? And if our town has kind of been neglected in some way, as some parts of Brighton, in my opinion, are very neglected, even though mm. people see it as a kind of affluent area. If you grow up without much money there, it's a very different experience. And so there's that sense of the characters wanting to leave, but also feeling very connected to that place and seeing its flaws yeah. and seeing its its kind of neglect as well, I suppose. So it's a, it's a novel about grief. It's a novel about relationships and, and love and how thorny that can be and how male-female relationships can be very violent. Uh, it's a story about finding out who you are and having, you know, finding the confidence to say that. And it's really, I think, it's a story about friendship and the and how complicated but also how amazing friendships can be and how you know a lot of stuff we read about people who don't have much tends to like focus on that yeah and i wanted this to humanize the people that i grew up with in brighton the people that i that i spent time with and that my brother leo spent time with you know people that might not fit like the traditional brighton you know, or, or, alfresco or, dining, and you know. Well, that's what I was going to say. In 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 doing that, you also humanise Brighton mm. in 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 this story. I think a story, so many stories set in Brighton, would either be the tourist affluent seaside town version or the glorious LGBTQ version of of Brighton. And you kind of show all the beauty of Brighton, but show the rough edges as well, and mm. not in a in a oh look at this way. In a mm. this is the whole picture. You can't yeah. just have this this cliched v- version of it. Mm. And I think that's great. And I think it it instantly shows lived experience. You know, r- rather than simply it's Brighton. Everyone knows Brighton. Yeah. It's you know. Yeah, it felt really important to me to to write. I'm quite interested in like, you know, ambiguities and yeah, as you say, things not ever being one thing. Things mm. are so many things at once and Brighton is so many things at once. And these people that I'm writing about, they are poor and suffering in some ways, but they're also an amazing community and brilliant friends and great people. And and life is like that, isn't it? You know, yeah. you suffer and you feel tremendous joy 
moments later. I'm really interested in those dualities and and I just I just wanted to give voice to some to certain people that I knew and was immensely fond of growing up in that town people that I didn't necessarily see represented in like mainstream literature a lot when I was growing up so yeah I guess it's about giving voice to my experience but so many other people's experiences hopefully as well yeah I love that Bear with me on this this question. It will it will make sense by the end. One of the things I love about this kind of st- streaming era that we're in is TV shows. If they that if they want to kind of tear up the rule books a bit, can do, do do what they want. Like they can make episodes as long as they want or as short as they want. Things can be what they need to be for the art. Now, obviously, I think it's also going away from that because there's so many things that should have been a film are turned into a eight-part TV show because mm. that's what networks want. But with that in mind, I really enjoyed kind of the, the formatting of Little Boxes as a, as a reader and as a writer, the way it kind of – so it kind of starts off just the first chapter or sh- show you, introduce you to one character's morning and then mm-hmm. we'll go over to the next character and see their morning. And then the more I read on, the more it's not even – here's the morning or here's this, it's going off with, once everyone's introduced, it's going off with characters for moments. And here's, mm. here's like, we'll go off, off with this character now and then we'll come back back to these guys, don't worry, we will. But the beauty of that means it allows, because moments vary in, in, in length, right? Mm. So some chapters or sections could be a couple of pages and then mm. it could be a far bigger m- moment or period or journey. I instantly enjoyed that as a reader, but then the writer in me also thought, man, that must have been a joy as a writer to kind of go, to not have that pressure of, here's the, the ne- I'm starting the next chapter. Mm. It's kind of, no, I'm starting the next bit mm. and we'll write it. And however long it is, it is. Mm. And then we're on to the next bit. So yeah, how was that? And where did that format choice come from? And how was that in as part of your process, I guess? I'm really glad that you picked up on that because, and I think you've you've hit the nail on the head, it was such a joy to be able to move into the minds of whichever character I wanted to. I felt yeah. like a sort of, I don't know, like a little spirit or something. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, now yeah. I'm in Matthew and he's thinking this and now I'm in Leah and she's thinking this and then what about if I, what about if I go into Matthew's brain but I look at Jay but I don't tell you what Jay's thinking. I just tell you what Matthew thinks he's thinking, you know? Yeah. It was so fun. And yeah. ha- coming from a, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the one-person show where it's it's I, 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 writing in the third person was, it was free. It felt like freedom. It mm. really did. And honestly, the, the the varying lengths of chapters, they... They they weren't intentional in a in a kind of really planned way. I really did write the book in like a long burst, and I think it's it's what I was instinctively, hopefully doing was just reflecting what what thoughts are like. I guess in a way, mm. you know, sometimes they're fleeting, and sometimes they are incredibly agonizing and scrutinizing. I suppose so. I was just having fun. I was just flitting about, basically. And the first draft was a complete mess. There was probably a bit too much of that. And I had an amazing mentor who I would like to shout out on this podcast because she, if I didn't have her, she she was just amazing. The book wouldn't exist without her. Her name is Kerry Hudson. Yeah. She has loads of incredible books out there in the world, one of which is a memoir about 
growing up with absolutely nothing on council estates uh, in Scotland. It's called Lowborn. And, and she's just an amazing writer, mm-hmm. but she's also exactly what I needed in terms of compassion, the perfect balance of compassion and strategy when I was writing yeah. the book. Yeah. She was like, Cecilia, you can do this. You're a good writer. Also, you need to completely get rid of this chapter. It's absolutely shite. <laughs> you yeah. know? I yeah. needed that. I needed the encouragement, but I also needed, you know, practical advice. So... She she helped me structurally massively and um and yeah the book wouldn't hang together without her insight I don't think. Do you, do you think that's important because again artists and writers can notoriously struggle with feedback or notes but if the person giving you those notes or that feedback is someone you massively respect and mm. admire it makes it a lot easier to take mm. on board and to take you know, to argue back with purity rather than defensiveness, to go, no, no, the reason that's here is this, rather than it being, how dare you question me, yeah. that kind of thing. Is is that, yeah. was that a key part of the process, I guess? I, I've never, I've never actually struggled that much with getting feedback because I've always been so grateful that anyone is looking at my work, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like the fact yeah. that someone's read something I've written and has formulated an opinion on it and then is taking the time to like feed it back to me I'm like oh my god I can't believe that you're you know especially with Kerry because I'd read her novels before she agreed to mentor me and I was like fangirling massively but yeah I think I guess well so I teach as well right I I, I actually now run the Roundhouse Collective which is what Polar Bear used to do which is a mad like full circle thing that I still feel like it's kind of crazy that that's happened but I love it I love it right because the thing that changed my life was community and I don't think that writing ever happens in a vacuum right Mm. like I think that there's this idea of this writer burning the midnight oil with a black coffee writing solitary you know prose all through the night which I maybe some people do right but my best work is done with other people, you know, mm. whether that's me and Kerry having a mentor session, whether that's me and six other poets feedbacking on, feedbacking on each other's work, whether that's even just, you know, down the pub chatting to another writer. Some of my best thoughts are forming and shifting and being challenged with other people. So I love getting feedback because it feels, you know, providing it's feedback by like a decent person and not just some dude that wants to comment on my stuff unsolicited (laughs) of course but I feel like I feel like it's growth you know and when I wrote the book when I wrote the novel I was such a baby I was I started it when I was 22 or something I'm nearly 30 you know I was such a novice I was just lapping it up I was just like growing and growing and growing and you know, maybe even to the point where at some points I was like, I'll do anything you say, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and now yeah, yeah, I've yeah. just started to learn to be a bit more discerning, which is just part of getting older, I think. But I love feedback and I love giving it and I love teaching and I love editing other people's work because that's where I started. I started in a room with six other people and I always want to have that sense of community, you know. I love that. So, I mean, I'll, I'll start to round things up with kind of asking what's ahead because... I mean, your first novel and your first collection of poetry, they're big milestones and they're kind of often the thing you're maybe working towards or looking towards in the future. So when they come, as we said, these things, it can be strange, it can be be underwhelming, it can be confusing, it can kind of remove a goal from your list. 
so what is ahead? Is there is there a plan? Do you know what's next? And yeah, obviously with t- with teaching being part of that as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm trying really hard to just be proud of myself mm. for doing these, for writing these two books that are coming out this year. And I'm trying not to panic and I'm trying not to tell myself that I'll never write another word again or never, you know, I, I sometimes fear that I'm never going to have another idea or I'm, I'm never going to be able to write another book. Yeah. And then I reassure myself, no, you probably will be able to write another book. But even if you didn't, that would still be okay, you know. Yeah. So I'm trying not to think of the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. I'm trying to just enjoy chatting about these two books, the poetry and the novel. And as I say, I'm always going to carry on teaching and editing other people's work for them. I love that. Until a new idea comes to me and then I will gently start writing it. But I want to have a bit of a break. Like I'd like, I want to, I just want to, I know it's hard because we're in the pandemic, but I want to see a little bit of the world. You know, I've worked since I was 15 I don't think I've ever taken more than two weeks off at a time. I'd love to have a bit of time off after these books come out and, I don't know, see some cool stuff. And, and I don't know, you know, maybe that will give me new ideas for, for what's coming. And, and live like, again, your first on yeah. both of these things. But they always say it with your first album, that's your whole life has led mm. up to that. And then you've got to write a second album yeah. with a month's worth of life lived yeah kind of thing. exactly so exactly you need to go and, and live them on well uh, before we do stop uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, the poetry collection what's poetry kind collection. of the deal with that yes it's out in october mm-hmm. uh with corsair it's called peach pig peach pig because a lot of the book looks at kind of being a woman and one of the poems is called ain't you a peach i used to work in bars a lot and i always used to get called a peach <laughs> i always thought that's so interesting why women are always they are always peachy or like soft or juicy in some way right so uh, and then pig because I actually feel more like a pig than a peach so I called the book peach pig and yeah similarly to the novel like it is a whole life's work it's a whole kind of 10 years of finding out what my voice is as a poet you know coming from sounding like polar bear when I first started because he was my first teacher to you know learning and crafting and finding out what I want my voice to be and I think the the book is full of you know challenging themes like grief and finding a language for that grief through the poetry but I hope it's also a bit cheeky and and fun in parts as well so I'm excited about that coming out I'm excited about that I can't wait well I've thoroughly enjoyed kind of looking in on your journey over this last 10 years or so and I can't wait to see what's what comes in the next 10 years or so as I said hopefully after some t- some time off and some some life lived so yeah thank you for taking the time it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me I've loved it You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 443 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Cecilia Knapp. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go back and check out the Jack Rook episode if you didn't catch it. Or as I said, the Moose Rock Wonga episode, the Polar Bear episode, the K Tempest episode. There's loads of... Re- I'm probably m- missing people out. Um, I had Mark Gris. And, and Ross Sutherland on so go and check that out that's a great one um there's loads of really good people that you can go and have a good listen to hear us all have a natter 
Um, I'll be back next week with more glorious guests. Until then, please try and stay safe and stay sane. Yeah, have fun and I will talk to you soon. Ta-ta.